What time is it with you there? Just because I, I keep not getting my head around the time difference. So it's, it's like quarter past five sort of in the afternoon. Yeah, it's, it's 9.13 right now. Oh, wow. So the way that I look at it is like a job is regularly a nine to five. So you're nine and I'm five. For me and yeah. it's five for you. Well, oh, that's actually quite helpful. I mean, everyone, everyone that I know that I like talk to on the phone are all in different time zones. See, I'm just not used to that. I'm just, everyone is on the same, same time as me. <laughs> well, you live be. in a country where you, 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 you can I live in a tiny, tiny country. It's a lovely country. I want to move there. But for now, you'll have to make do with British imports, such as mm. Doctor Who. <laughs> Segway. Segway. Hi, I'm Julia, a Doctor Who enthusiast. I've been wanting to get into classic Doctor Who, but there's a lot. Luckily, I have my friend Jonah. Hello, that's me. A legit Brit and Doctor Who uber nerd. That's not how you bitched it. To guide me through the basics of understanding classic Who. So, Jonah, what are we watching this time? This episode, An Unearthly Child. All right, this podcast is going to be taking a deep dive into the Hooniverse. Do people say that? Yeah, no, people do say that. I'm, oh, me, good. me being people, I say that. <gasps> really? Yeah. You, okay, the Hooniverse. The I mean, it also makes me think of like Dr. Seuss. Yeah. And like Horton Hears a Who. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Horton um, Hears a Whovian. We will keep referring to it as the first episode, but mm -hmm. it's a serial because that's how all classic Who is. It's a serial of stories. Um, right. So the first. Not like breakfast cereal no no but i i don't know if the where the word cereal i think it's it's not spelled is it spelled the same C no it's s-e-r-i-a-l yeah. kind Thank of you. like serial killer yeah yeah because they kill a bunch of people where yeah. this is a bunch of yeah and it know. all it all fits together exactly. like there's a reason unless yeah. it's a randomized serial killer in which case it doesn't fit together but no. that in itself is its own yeah yeah but we're not a true crime podcast. We're a <laughs> true time podcast. Oh my God. That was so lame. You know, it's a, it's an unfamiliar thing to us nowadays. Um, but like, it's more akin, I think. Stuff like, you know, Sherlock Holmes and novels of things were serialized and published in chapters. Um, and the same way with like a comic book series now. Something like Spider-Man's been running since 62, I think similar sort of time and it's you know and different creators will come and work on it and go come and go and it will go through different things mm -hmm. so if it, it's it, that's the that's what it feels akin to but this first serial is made up of four episodes each about 20 minutes which is the average and um so the first episode in that serial is an unearthly child but the the first serial as a whole has a bunch of different names it's either collected as an unearthly child the whole thing mm -hmm. or 100,000 BC for the caveman politics the, for the serial yeah or it's the scripts when that was collected is called the tribe of gum what yeah the tribe of gum is the name given to the cavemen tribe, but it doesn't actually ever appear in the no. episode. I was say, how do you know that information? Because I didn't like, honestly, yeah. learning the caveman's names was rough for me. I yeah. was like, I thought Za was was actually Zar, 
but with a British accent. Yeah. Well, then you have like Cal. And so like then at the end of the episode, when it has the actors and the characters, I was like, oh, it's Za. And I spelled Cal with a C. And so I changed that. But I was like, oh, great. It's like Calzone and pizza. (laughs) They're just fighting each other. Yeah. No, I don't I don't know exactly where the it might be from the novelization. The novelization is Doctor Who and an unearthly child. But I think that's where the origin of the, the name for the tribe comes from. But okay. just in retrospect, people just use that to refer to them. So um, is Susan the unearthly child? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's 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 an odd one to start with. The first episode on its own, I think, is is just is fantastic as a it's pilot. It's really cool. Yeah. And then the the Caveman serial, I think if it had been placed later in the series or whatever, it wouldn't be so wouldn't feel so weird, but it's just leading with this script, it's it feels like an odd choice. But I mean, didn't you say that Doctor Who started out as like a historical it was yeah. pitched as like teaching kids history, and so of course they're gonna start with a historical story. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's pitched as the educational program and that lasted about four episodes. Right. It lasted this yeah. serial. And then they were like, scratch that. Daleks. All right. All right. So the the thing about the pilot is that there were two of them. Yeah. Right? Famously, um, they make the pilot for Doctor Who and it goes very badly wrong. <laughs> and they basically get given a chance to make it again. Um, same script, same actors, just another pass at it. Mm-hmm. And that's the one that goes out. We still have the original first episode. We don't have, you know, half of the 10th planet and Marco Polo, but we have the, you know, unaired pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, and comparing the two is really interesting. I haven't, I didn't watch the unaired no. pilot. You did. So I was I like, did. I can't compare either of those. I've only seen the first episode that was aired. I think it's interesting because they, again, like I said, it's the same script. And it's pretty much the same to the point where I started watching it and wasn't sure if I was watching the right one, mm-hmm. if I was watching the Ed one or the pilot. But they, there's like lots of very subtle differences, which I think add something to the, the, what the show has become. So for instance, what, what the, one of the key differences is the characterization of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Even in the episode that we get, he's quite... He's really gruff. A bit standoffish, yeah. yeah. But he's got a bit more of... In, in an adventure in space and time, the documentary, they, they, they describe it as his twinkle, don't Do they? they? He's, got, he's, got, he's got this twinkle about oh, him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, that's, that's missing from... The, he's, he's a lot more aggressive and he, like, he calls Susan's stupid child. And Aww. he's sort of... He's just aggressive from the outset. Uh-huh. Whereas in the, in the actual episode that went out, even when he's, you know, when he's talking to Ian and Barbara in the junkyard, he's a little bit, little bit cheeky and he's right he's 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 a little more tricky about it yeah it's it's interesting looking back now but like the seeds of the the kind of goofy light persona of the doctor that we're so used to almost wasn't you know wasn't even seeded Mm -hmm. we you know they put a little bit of that in and that grows over william hartnell's three years he starts as this gruff character and he just mellows and becomes you know more like the doctor we're used to well, I mean, you can even see his mellowing out in the first, like, of the caveman politics. Yeah. Like, he does sl- very slowly get 
less of a grumpy butthole about things. (laughs) Yeah. And he's, he's placed, he, he's like framed as much more an antagonistic figure. He's the one, you know, he traps Ian and Barbara in the TARDIS and takes off Mm. without them. Mm -hmm. Also, there's other little things like, um, his costume's different in the pilot. He wears like a suit jacket and a tie. Whereas in the, the, the actual episode, he wears like, you know, the Edwardian Mm-hmm. frock coat with the cravat so even that the idea of the doctor's outfit being sort of out of time and, yeah or, but also susan's characterization is quite different i don't know they they sort of aged her down a bit because so caroline ford i think was 23 at the time she's playing a 15 year old okay so she definitely plays her more younger but also more ethereal in the air yeah in the Pilot? end one, yeah. Okay. She's again a bit older and a bit more abrasive in the first well, one. Well, I mean, that kind of makes sense, though. Like, if her, if the doctor is also more abrasive, then it makes sense that if they're family members, which they are, they are family members. Yeah. Um, that she would have similar characteristics. Yeah. And the, the, obviously, I think the, the biggest difference is there's also a line Susan says, which is changed between the episodes. The first one, she she says very specifically that they are from the 49th century. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the actual pilot, they just say, she, she says she was born in another time in another place, you know, in another century. And they leave it vague, which again, when we watch it now, we've got all this lore and continuity and stuff in our heads. Mm-hmm. The show that they, they're making is not that show. They're making something completely different. They don't know what a Time Lord is. They don't know what regeneration is. You know, they don't know what Gallifrey is. None of this stuff exists. All they're going off is these people are from another time, another place. And, you know, the mystery is who is this man? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the mystery is also why are they exiled? Yeah. So for you watching this, going in fresh and dewy eyed, what were the most surprising things for you watching this first episode? Um, okay. So having the lore of like new Doctor Who and then going into the classic and watching the first, I mean, honestly, watching the first episode was really cool. Um, I was very excited when you shared it with me. I was like, literally I've told people about it and they're like, Oh, that's great. I was like, no, you don't get it. It's really cool. Um, it had the same vibe which I thought was interesting. At least the first episode did. The caveman politics were admittedly kind of boring, but um, it picks up by the third episode um, out of four. <laughs> and I just really liked the vibe of it. I thought it was was cool, um, especially that like he's already, you see him already picking up companions at this point. Like the only thing, the only difference was um, that was sort of, sort of confusing for me was that the time war hadn't happened yet. And so Susan, yeah. Susan is actually his granddaughter. Yeah. And I was like, wait, yeah. she's not just saying that she's no, his no, grand, like, this she is, is actually. His granddaughter. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing as well that I think I remember my, my brother thinking that as well. Which I think is just is is just a is a credit to Russell T Davis in the new show is people watch it and think that the Time War is part of the established. It's been around since the sixties, and no, that's yeah. that you know that's not a thing until the new series. That's that's what the that's what the in series reason is for the gap. 
between the show being off air is because there was a giant was going time on. war happening. Yeah, and it's and it's also gives you know if it, it also gives a good excuse for why things might be inconsistent. Oh, because all of time and space was being messed around. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no. So, but again, you know, we we look at this and we think, "What well, the Doctor has a granddaughter? What? That's so weird." But like again, they were just making a show where it's an old man and his granddaughter. That's right. what that's what but we're starting like, with. Coming in with with the new knowledge, I was yeah. just like, "What? Yeah. Like, I thought he was alone in the universe. Like, they they actually emphasize how alone he is in the universe, yeah. and like, it's it's a plot point in the new Doctor Who when he's not always alone in the universe when they, he finds other people, but maybe it's not what it seems. And so, him to just have someone that is actually related to him." was mind-blowing yeah again it's it's a long way down the line because they don't start bringing in law you know he is doctor who question mark even though there is no question mark mm-hmm. that you know he has no backstory or whatever for quite a long time it's only at the end of patrick Troughton's serial we meet the time lords technically we go to gallifrey but you don't you don't really see any of it it's sort of like a black void mm-hmm. you know later on time lords and people start popping up and we do we go you know we do get all this lore and stuff but again it's interesting when they rebooted the show is they kind of pushed all that back a bit and got rid of them all and said you know the importance is this one guy and yeah again you know you're saying what are they they exiled for and that's still not been answered what you know to this day we we are you kidding me we don't know what the doctor's name is and we don't know why he left gallifrey oh my god there are like extended media stuff where they've like him okay. yeah, they've what's your answers. theory what's your theory I why is he exiled i don't know i don't i well this, this is the thing i don't i don't think that's important but i never really care about the doctor's backstory before this episode everything that's interesting about him or them is about is 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 picked up going forward which is why i think it's so interesting that he starts out as a grumpy old man because you, you get to watch him pick up the traits that make him the doctor from the humans he's traveling with. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes him the doctor. So, cause again, if we're looking back, you know, within the law, he's not the doctor capital T at this point. He doesn't even necessarily call himself the doctor. We don't know. It's, you know, it's only in the second episode when Ian refers to him as Dr. Foreman. He's like, what? Who's that? And they just call him the doctor because they don't know what his name is. Like Doctor Who. And Susan doesn't yeah. call him by his name. She calls him grandfather because she... Because oh. it is her grandfather. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, this is sort of the proto-doctor. He's sort of the doctor before all the things that make him the doctor. Yeah. I just, I, I'm so interested in why he shows up as a grumpy old man and is exiled. Like, I, I love that he is very interesting out like moving forward and outside of that but i just want to know i want the tea vaguely it's sort of said again this is later on it's sort of it's sort of implied that he doesn't agree with the time lords the time lords have a thing of non-intervention and he sort of Mm. disagrees he like and they don't interfere with the rest of the universe and he doesn't Mm -hmm. kind of agree with that right Um, but again that's at this point in in the story we know nothing we know nothing Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No people in in the sixties are just like, oh, this is a weird show, but all right. It's just a man and his box. Yep. Yeah. Imagine it's nineteen sixty three. 
Okay. You've we sat down to watch color. TV. You've seconds earlier just learned that President Kennedy has been assassinated. Which oh, is something no. we didn't mention is that. Oh, yeah. You can watch the, there's, there's a clip of this, which is, it's the news thing. We, we got to inform you that President Kennedy has been shot. Mm-hmm. BBC Ident. And now Doctor Who. And it's well, like, okay, hang on. Quick question, though. Yeah. Like, how how does the assassination of the American president affect the United Kingdom? Like, does it affect you guys the same yeah. way that it would affect us? Well, not not the same way in terms of politically, but like, it's still shocking. It's shocking that in a, in you know modern times, mm-hmm. figurehead of state has been killed. Yeah. And obviously, there's the special relationship. It's it's still shocking and still distracting mm-hmm. from whatever's next on TV. You're going to be thinking about the president's been shot that's, the that's whole fair, time. That's fair. Okay. So imagine anyway, it's, a, it's a week later and they're playing the first episode again because that's what they did is they, they showed the first episode the next week before the next bit because they thought people wouldn't have paid attention to it. So they so it's a week later. The death of President Kennedy is still on your mind. But not as much. Yes. You sit down in front of your tiny square black and white TV in your 1960s living room and <laughs> on this. comes this show. This, show. <laughs> this is a terrible setup. <laughs> this is an amazing setup. Keep it in. <laughs> Part one. And an earthly child. From the fog of a London night, a lone policeman walks his round. Somewhere, a bell chimes the hour as he passes the dark blue painted gates of a junkyard. I am Foreman Scrap Merchant, 76 Totters Lane. The policeman carries on his route, but we remain in the junkyard, moving forward through the gates to settle on an old blue police box, humming with a high-pitched energy. At Coal Hill School, history teacher Barbara Wright has a problem. The problem is a girl in her class named Susan Foreman. After school, she joins her friend and science teacher Ian Chesterton in his classroom to confide in him. Okay, but I need to interject really quick here. Yeah. Um, Barbara and Ian have one of two different vibes. Yeah. The first one I see is like work wife, work husband. And the other one I see is like besties that spill the tea to each other all of the time yeah just like even just the way that she walks into his classroom um yeah she goes straight to him she really does she's like oh something weird happened i better go talk to ian and i'm just like barbara it's this bizarre thing in like especially in like 60s and 70s who in that 100 percent, all the kind of male female companions fancy each other but oh, thank God. Okay. I didn't want to like put that on them if that... But yeah. we can't say that because cause it's family tea time TV. You oh. Know? But like... But the subtext is there. But we're all thinking it, right? 100% all, yeah. they have banged in a classroom closet. <laughs> yeah. that's When she walks in, that's what Ian's thinking is going to happen. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, and she's like, well, I'm having this trouble with a student. He's like, uh, okay, where's this going? Um <laughs> But then yeah. he's like there for it. He yeah. like they're they're obviously they have a friendship going on. Um yeah. and I just think it's funny. They're so willing like, to engage in capers together and go off on like hijinks after yeah. school. Yeah. Like you know? they're the only teachers at the school that are around the same age. And yeah. so they're just naturally pitted together, I yeah. think. 
But I just, I wanted to put that out there because I was like, I think this is what's happening, but I don't know. But then there's like other moments where they get really close to each other where I'm just yeah. like, really? I mean, uh, so, yeah. you know, again, I don't want to go too much into like extended media and stuff because it's, you know, canon is, I've, <laughs> I, I view it as, you know, when the doctor's talking about fixed moments in time and not fixed moments in time, because a lot of canon, especially around Doctor Who, other st- stuff like extended media, like audios and books contradict each other so it's kind of like in my head the tv show is fixed moments in time these definitely happen okay. and everything else is sort of wishy-washy um mm-hmm. but there, you know there is stuff that like does say that they sort of end up together <gasps> oh. but like it's not i just you know it's but the show doesn't necessarily i think ever say that i'm not sure well i think it's sort of referred to in the sarah jane adventures that there's a couple ian and barbara somewhere i think oh my god um, i love you that as, you think as well though trauma bonds people so like they've been through a lot together and no one else they can talk to i feel like yeah they're gonna yeah. end up together but yeah okay all right sorry sorry okay um barbara walks into ian's classroom yes. she's having trouble with a student susan foreman the girl is strange obviously very bright but with alarming gaps in her knowledge Barbara tells Ian that she offered her extra tuition at home, but Susan turned it down, stating it wouldn't be possible, as her grandfather doesn't like strangers. Ian admits he's had similar issues with Susan in his class, her being frustrated and confused by simple experiments. Barbara says she tried to get Susan's address so she could visit her grandfather and explain, but the address she was given by the school is one for a junkyard in Shoreditch. Both of them starting to feel suspicious. Ian suggests they take his car and follow Susan home. Yeah, they do. Which, yeah, which I feel like there's there's very little, like, yeah, let's just jump in your car and, right. and do a nightly stakeout. Oh no one gosh. else is looking, no oh one else is gosh. suspicious these people aren't around. <laughs> like, the, But these two teachers, they're just finding reasons to hang yeah, out with each other in yeah. close quarters. Actually, I, I think the whole thing makes so much more sense. Is like, hey, um... Uh, as a student, we could go and stay. I'm really worried, you know. I'm really worried about this one so student. So worried and- about this student. Yeah, we should, we should really go, go check on her. Hang out in your car and see what happens. And just watch. And- yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Let's let's do it. I have nothing going on tonight. Nothing. Neither of them have any plans." <laughs> They arrive at the junkyard ahead of her, and while they wait, they both recount incidents of Susan's oddness in their classroom. Barbara tells of a time that the girl got confused, thinking the UK currency was decimal, something which didn't happen in the real world until 1975, but that she could recount historical events in great detail. Wait, I don't know if I understand. Which of those words? (laughs) All of those words. Do you know what a shilling is? No. Neither do I, really. (laughs) So, okay, British currency. You know know how, like... How, Side note for British currency, I yes. need to know, as an American. Okay, this is not my area of expertise. Um, well, you so, are British, so everything is your area of expertise when right. it comes to Britain. So, like, British money used to not be, you know, you know, like a, like a decimal system where 10 divides into 10, you know, it's like a, a pound, a hundred oh, okay. okay, okay. pence is a pound, like that. It used to be, like, pennies, then shillings, which I think a sh- shilling is five pence. I might be wrong. And then like a six punts and a hape and halfpennies, which is a half penny, and like all these different coins okay. that didn't. So, just is it is it is imperial money similar to the way that like money in Harry Potter 
works in the wizarding world because uh, that money is complete garbage. Yeah. I have no idea how that works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically. Similarly, Ian has a story of an experiment he ran with litmus paper and how Susan found it annoyingly childish. As they're talking, Susan herself appears and vanishes through the gates of the junkyard. However, when the two teachers follow her inside, she is nowhere to be seen. There is only lots of old, ornate junk and an old police telephone box in the corner. They're trying to fathom where Susan might have gone when the gates open again and an old man enters. An old man wearing a cloak and an astrakhan hat. Not spotting the two teachers, the old man makes as if to unlock the doors to the police box. And at that moment, Susan's voice comes ringing from inside. The two pounce from their hiding place to confront the old man, who seems peeved and elusive as though distracted by items in the junkyard as they inquire about the missing girl. Yeah, I mean, understandably, it's a yeah. small police box and he's like, what? Suddenly she's been captured by this old man he and thinks that he's stuffed yeah, in a police box. But he, Susan's being locked in a box overnight. <laughs> so Ian is pitched as the action hero he's the male yeah. lead of this show but he he lives that he does yeah. that like that is completely yeah. ian he i mean later in this episode he sort of falls apart a little bit when <laughs> yeah he does yeah when he's in the tardis but as soon as he has like when there is a clear directive yeah, when there is like he a plan to be it. accomplished yeah. he is on it when it's like but also barbara's right there he needs yeah. to show that he's he's yeah, well, a exactly. viable he's, mate yeah, right He's being big, big man for Barbara. Yeah. Uh, okay, so Ian jumps out. When Ian threatens to get the police involved, the old man laughs and suggests that they should go and fetch a policeman while he waits. This almost works to get rid of them, but again, Susan's voice comes from inside the box. On hearing it, Barbara and Ian barge past the old man and into the blue box, only to find a gleaming white control room with honeycomb walls and an odd mix of furniture and computer banks. The whole room hums with an ethereal energy and standing by the hexagonal control panel in the centre of the room is Susan. The old man enters behind them, asking Susan to close the doors, which she does with a switch on the console. The two large doors closing on their own with a whir. This man, it's revealed, is Susan's grandfather. This room is their space-time ship, the TARDIS, time and relative dimension in space. They are wanderers in the fourth dimension. Susan and her grandfather are not from this time or place. They come from another civilization, a world where concepts such as fourth dimensional travel are child's play, a world they are cut off from as exiles. Which we never learn as to why they nope. are exiles. No. Nope. Mm. Something has gone down. Something probably involving Susan's parents who we never learned anything about. Maybe. I was literally just thinking like what if what if it was just some crazy caper that yeah. a, a, that Susan and the doctor got into and it yeah. nothing nothing to do with the parents. It well, was just literally those two doing something and now they have to leave. Again, there's loads of like you know, ex, you know, other media has you know given lots of things like Susan's not actually his granddaughter. She's someone who he found and they're just going by that. And, you know, there's all that kind of stuff. But I just, again, I just think it loses some of the mystery if yeah. you're trying to explain it. But like, I, I prefer like every so often in the new series, there's like a line, like the doctor will say like, oh, I had children once or I have dad skills. And it just mm -hmm. suddenly throws this little thing in of, oh, well, this person's lost people close to him. Yeah. That's his origin story somewhere. He has something involving 
some sort of loss, whether it, they might not have died, but there is, you know, he's he's been forced to leave his home. And I think there's no answer which will be satisfactory enough, but just sort of hinting at it. I, I mean, I like the idea that it was literally Susan and the doctor doing something dumb on Gallifrey and they were kicked off for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And they're just like, all right, well, I guess we're going to leave. Yeah. Um, and then they'll go back and her parents will be like, you learn your lesson. Yeah. Like, haha, no. And then they get kicked off again. I just think yeah. that'd be funny. It's a much less depressing thought than something having happened to her parents. Yeah. And his his children. His children. Susan's grandfather insists that the two teachers cannot be allowed to leave, having seen the advanced technology of the TARDIS. Nor can he and Susan stay in the 20th century. When Ian tries to operate the door switch himself, he is electrocuted by the console, and the old man only laughs impishly. Susan begs her grandfather to let them go, saying that she is willing to stay behind in the 20th century with them. For a moment it looks like the old man might agree, but when he moves to activate the door control himself, instead... He starts up the time rotor, launching them all spinning into the vortex of space and time. For the first time, we hear the sound of the TARDIS engines, as Earth, London, and 1963 are left behind. When the TARDIS lands, it's in a strange, rocky, alien landscape. It sits slightly askew, an object out of time, as the wind blows around. A shadow falls across the rocks. Something has seen the TARDIS arrive. I just think it's it's it genuinely the first time I watched it surprised me of how engaging that first 20 minutes are. It's really good. Yeah. It's and also it's splits into three acts so easily. It's you've mm-hmm. got the school with Ian and Barbara with all the flashbacks in, then you have the the junkyard sequence mm-hmm. with them meeting the doctor and then finally you have the whole section in the TARDIS. You know, we we talked about all the things that are different, all the things that aren't established in canon, but the idea of this, you know, an ordinary object that has a hidden spaceship inside, a man who is sort of an impish trickster figure who is sort of easily distracted and sort mm-hmm. of otherworldly, but also can has a hard edge. To, there's all of these things. He's that very are, chaotic neutral, yeah. I would say. And so there is so much in this first episode that is the, the, you know, the show, you know, it doesn't come out completely fully formed, but. You know, there's enough of it here that's you know has the kept vibe it going. is there. The vibe yeah. is there. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, question. Yeah. Has the TARDIS noise, like when we hear it, has it stayed the same noise the entire time, like through the whole series of classic and new Doctor Who? Because um, it sounds like it. Yes. Yeah. It is actually. I. Th- it, obviously, it's been like remixed a little bit. But mm-hmm. the actual sound effect is the same sound <gasps> that was recorded in the 60s. So a um, little bit of backstory. So have you ever heard of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop? No. Okay. So, Should I have? No. Well, basically the BBC decided to set up a department for experimenting with music and sound. Um, and the idea was that all the people within it would be anonymous. They're only referred to as the BBC Radiophonic Workshop is what the credit is. There was a movement in music around the time called uh, Concrete or Music Concrete, I think, which is all about sampling sounds from the real world and putting them through synthesizers to create music. 
And at the time you had to use actual like tape and cut it and to, to do mm, this mm-hmm. very fiddly. And the BBC, you know, this is before the synthesizers and stuff we have today. And the BBC Radiophonic Workshop were basically experimenting with weird sounds and things. That's fun. How do you get that kind of job? Well, I don't know. It's not a thing anymore, I don't think. I know. I'm just thinking like in the 60s, like how would you, can you just show up and like jangle your keys? (laughs) Like how many different sounds did they just think about? They were just sitting there and just like making weird sounds with their body parts and just like (laughs) figuring it out. So the the TARDIS noise is a key up and down the bass string of a piano uh, through Mm -hmm. distortion. There is a, there's a sort of controversy around the Doctor Who title sequence and theme tune. So the, the theme music for Doctor Who is written by a man called Ron Granger, who's the guy who's credited. So he okay. wrote the notes of the Doctor Who theme tune. But the music is made by a woman called Delia Derbyshire, who um, works in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Okay. And, and because she works in the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, it's, you know, it's only credited as the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Right, right. The idea originally was that she was going to create this ethereal sound and then they'd get a, a regular, you know, some recording musicians to record the kind of the music over the top of that. Mm-hmm. But what she created was so otherworldly and bizarre that mm-hmm. they were like, well, th- this is this is the theme. This is the whole thing. Right. This is what we're doing. Yeah. But but because she's only, because the only thing that's credited is the Radiophonic Workshop and Ron Granger for writing the music, for a long time, he's the only one who's credited with creating the Doctor Who theme tune. But like, they didn't use his music, did they? Well, they used, he wrote those notes, but he oh, didn't. Oh, okay. But what was created and what makes it so iconic was Delia Derbyshire. So now, I think on the credits, it's she is credited as. Are both of them still alive? I don't think so. I need oh, to check, okay. actually. I, I have, in, on my notes in front of me, I have like the kind of ages and dates of a lot of the actors in this, but I haven't done it for a lot of the behind the scenes crew. So I will. Well, I mean, I wouldn't ask about yeah. it for a lot of the behind the scenes crew. It was just as we were talking about the music, I was wondering. I, I think she's dead. Dear Dabshire. I, I mean, apart from a few extras in the school scenes, the only characters we've really had are our four TARDIS crew. Yeah. And I'm interested in what you think of them. I'm going to include the Doctor as well because he's he's such a different version. We've talked a little bit about it, but what do you think of the TARDIS crew, these compa- these first companions? Um, I mean, I think they fit really well with kind of the format that I've seen in new companions. I mean, um, there, there aren't many times I feel like where the doctor has three, there are times in the new ones where he does, but usually it's like two or less. And so it's always fun when there's just like a whole group of people. Um, Susan, I like her, um, in the beginning, I thought she was kind of strange but i mean it's literally titled an unearthly child so like it makes sense but like she's doing something weird with her hand in the school when she's listening to music i'm just like what are you doing sort of dancing it's it's so interesting because then like not long after we see her doing that weird hand thing 
Ian and Barbara have just come from Ian's classroom and they're going into Barbara's classroom now. And like they're talking to her, but the music is still playing. And like even me, it was loud and it was distracting me. And then at one point, Ian's like, the music is distracting me. And she's like, oh, sorry. And she turns it down. I was like, oh, thank God, because like <laughs> it was too much. So I was really glad that Ian also was annoyed by it. Um, I I like Ian, I think he, I think that his growth is, will be very obvious up front. Um, and then maybe there will be smaller things or like a more subtle yeah. one. But like, I mean, he goes in kind of having a closed mind about space travel. And then. Yeah. It's inter- I think what I find interesting is that he's, you know, obviously you meet him as a sort of a very chill guy. He is a super chill guy. As soon as he's confronted by the TARDIS, he just doesn't believe it. He keeps saying it's impossible, it's impossible. Where mm-hmm. Barbara, on the other hand, just sort of takes it in a She slight. goes for it. She's yeah. just like, I mean, we're seeing this right in front of us. Why are you not believing it? Um, yeah. Literally, like it is, it is right here. Um, so I like Barbara for that i mean i just love ian and barbara i want to just watch the show for them and see all of their subtext and just it's so funny to me i i think as well i I think barbara is such a good character all of the plot of this first episode is 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 her she's pushing it she's the one who suggests that they you know brings up susan she's the one that suggests that they go Mm -hmm. investigate and you know there's this sort of she's up for adventure she's a history teacher all right, so let's move into the cavemen. So we, when we watched this the first time, I was falling asleep. Yeah, it we was watched, so boring. We watched the first episode, and then <laughs> we watched this next episode, the Cave of Skulls, and and it was. And a bit then much. I was like, "Can we watch something else, please?" Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> I what, felt really bad. What we did but... watch, which I think was a great idea, was an adventure in space and time, which I think yeah, was it was the right so cool. Choice. That was. A- um, fantastic choice yes but yeah how did you find cavemen the second time around the second time around um i actually kind of liked it okay i i still thought it was a little boring um but watching it by myself versus with another person definitely plays a factor in like how much i pay attention to things and like my energy level because when we had watched it together We'd also been like, what, walking around, walking around all of the day or like there was a lot, it was a travel day and then it was really long. And so then when I watched it on my own, at my own house, I had the energy and I was going in knowing that we were going to talk about it. So I was like paying even more attention because I was like writing notes and questions. Um, But again... I only started actually liking it by the end of the third one. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Again, I I don't dislike this these three episodes. No, they're not terrible. After the first episode, it yeah. isn't as exciting. Yeah. I, I get, it's just, I think it's placement for me. I think it goes so hard from this iconic first episode mm-hmm. into a very, very slow paced serial. And it's the same writer as well as in yes. Earthly Child. Anthony Coburn is the writer who wrote all four episodes of An Earthly Child. Um, I don't think he's written any other episodes of Doctor Who. He pitched a serial for the next 
for the following up stories that was then replaced by the Daleks. I think it's called The Masters of Luxor and it's been made by Big Finish. They did a series of unmade, taking unmade stories and making them as Mm -hmm. audios. Oh, just to clarify though, what is Big Finish for the people that might not know what Big Finish is? Big Finish. Oh, if you haven't come across, it's a great way to lose a lot of money real quickly. (laughs) Um, It's it's an amazing company that um, started in, I think, 1998 um, that make audio dramas of classic British TV shows where they can with the original cast. And they do so much Doctor Who. And they do a lot of it with from Tom Baker onwards. Tom Baker up to David Tennant, they have the original actors coming mm-hmm. back in a lot of cases. And then with the first three Doctors, they've recently got some amazing um, impressionists for the first and third Doctor. And then they have Patrick Troughton's son has just started doing... They, they, have, they have like legacy members of the family come mm-hmm. back and and play their parents' parts, which I think oh, is it's just great. That um, is great. Yeah, and they do a lot. They did a whole series set between this first series and the second series with a cast of Adventure in Space and Time. So with David Bradley and people playing these four characters. Mm-hmm. And they've done a series, which is really good. Um, so yeah, um, there's, there's some free stuff on the website. I really recommend checking it out. It's overwhelming. There is an overwhelming amount. Yeah, you sent me some very long texts about where I could start yes. and what I should listen to. And I ended up choosing um, The Adventures of River Song. Yes, which I think I is her. actually a really good choice because you get to meet a bunch of the classic doctors. Part two, The Cave of Skulls. Picking straight up from where we last left off with the shadow appearing in front of the TARDIS, we now see who is casting it as a caveman gazes in wonder at the box that has just appeared out of the air. A little way off we meet the tribe, a collection of cave people, all huddled round one man as he attempts to make fire with two sticks. This man is Zar, the current leader of the tribe, and as he fails to light a small pile of tinder, we overhear a conversation between two women. Old Mother... Literally her name is Old Old Mother or Old Woman. She doesn't have a name... Not great. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, this character, Old Mother, and um, another cave woman who's called Her, which is spelled H-U-R, but is just Her. her. <laughs> we learn that Zar's father, Gore, was the leader of the tribe before him and knew the secret of making fire, though he was killed in a hunting expedition before he could pass the secret on. Although Zar has inherited the title of leader, his position now rests on his ability to create fire. Her wonders if the stranger Carl might lead them. She is promised to the leader of the tribe by her father, Hawk, but the leader is the one who makes fire. Um, her is, is sort of treated as a bit of an object being promised to the leader of the tribe. She seems right. fine with it, but I Well, I'm also not. she she is fully, I mean, even if if her father thinks that she's a pro, an object that can go to anyone, she still pretty loyally stays with Za. Like yeah. she's never interested in Cal. Oh, I think she is. I think she's interested in, oh, yeah? in Cal a little bit and then... When the power changes, she is interested in Zara again. She does, I think actually she does get a bit more to do in the later episode. She becomes a bit like a kind of, when, you know, I'm talking about it being Shakespeare. She becomes a bit of a Lady Macbeth character sort of whispering in Zara's ear a bit, I think, mm. in later episodes. Okay. Um, which could be a bit tropey, but I think it's kind of, it's, I think it's, it's yeah, 
That's good. It's um, also possible I might have just mistaken Za and Cal because they looked very similar. They do look very similar and it's very dark. Yeah. They've got very similar haircuts. <laughs> they do. I do, especially All in the fight the scene in the final are... episode. I oh just completely lost track of who was who. Don't even get me started on that fight scene. <laughs> yeah. Interesting fact. Um let me just scroll down. Uh, Derek New- Newmark, who played Czar, who is mm-hmm. also credited as movement director. Oh! So basically, I think that what it means is they choreographed their own fight sequences. Yep. Um, which feels very in keeping with the kind of the kind yep. of yep. You know, community like, theatre. Anyone vibe. else know how to stage stage fight? Exactly. You, do you know David, how to make a nap? You got it. You got you it. Do All the, right. You know. Yeah. You know how to reverse. What's it? Reverse pressure when you. Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so the leader is the one who makes fire. Back in the TARDIS, Ian and Barbara stir from where they have fallen during the flight. Susan and her grandfather both seem wide awake, as though the journey didn't affect them. They stand by the console taking readings. Although oxygen and radiation are normal, the old man fears that the TARDIS urometer is broken, reading only zero. Ian still doesn't believe a word of it. He asks Dr. Foreman for proof, to which Susan's grandfather replies, Meh? Doctor Who? As if to prove a point to Ian, the Doctor finally opens the doors, revealing the barren landscape outside. He exits quickly with his bag to take samples by which to judge where they've landed. Barbara follows, but for Ian, the realisation is beginning to dawn that this might all be very real. I also, I love the the urometer, and it it can't go past zero, which surely is... But not even the Wouldn't Romans. Wouldn't that be like the creation yeah. of the universe? No, no, it's, year zero is AD. Right, so where... where? <laughs> yeah, we could be yeah. anywhere from like the mid-Roman Empire to the creation of the universe. It's mm-hmm. about four billion years worth of... Anyway. Um, so it's probably broken. I mean, I, that's actually a thing I love actually is about the TARDIS from the off. The TARDIS instantly is breaking everything you know, the TARDIS constantly is <laughs> it's the always is all, <laughs> from day one the doctor is oh this isn't working we d- we've never encountered another TARDIS but we know that this TARDIS is not a very good TARDIS in at this point in the show we have met one TARDIS and this TARDIS is broken it's not a very well-functioning <laughs> TARDIS we've never met another TARDIS but we know that there are ones that probably work better than this one and I just that's oh, beautiful oh I love that yeah yeah Outside in the cold landscape, the Doctor is concerned by the ship's exterior, remarking, it's still a police box. Susan elaborates that the TARDIS was supposed to change wherever they land. It's been a Roman column and a sedan chair, just to name a few shapes. Up until this point, the the TARDIS isn't a police box. The TARDIS was just a police box because they were in 1963 London. But this is the first time that the TARDIS has malfunctioned. I think that's fun. I mean, it's it's just been stuck as a police box since 1960s. Yeah. Which is hilarious to me. In this time, the Doctor has wandered away. Inspecting the terrain, he fails to notice the stooped figure sneaking towards him, holding a stone hammer. The Doctor lights up his pipe. The Doctor smokes a pipe, apparently, or at least the first Doctor does. Mm. Um, I mean, again, in the... I think the master smokes in the mind of evil. He smokes a cigar. But like the idea of the doctor smoking is so alien to us. He was a man in the 60s. Men in the 60s all smoked, you know? Yeah. 
He has a big elaborate pipe as well. He's a, like a proper... He does, like, yeah. Yeah. He's like, notice him smoking. Seeing the spark and the flame, the caveman pounces. A little way off, the others hear the doctor's cry, but arrive to find him gone. Only his instruments and his notebook left behind. Seeing the notebook, Susan begins to panic, knowing her grandfather would never leave it behind. But also, I think this moment with the notebook is very interesting. Susan mentions that the doctor's notebook has all his codes for operating the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. And then later on, he doesn't know. the co- when, when they're leaving at the end of the serial, he says he doesn't know all the codes. So maybe he lost this book and that's why he doesn't know where he's going half the time. Oh, man. Okay. Back with the tribe, Zara is confronted by the elder caveman, Horg. He chides Zara over the stranger, Carl, who has been providing meat for the tribe. Zara only scoffs, claiming that Carl's original tribe must have died or cast him out. Carl himself may have died if he hadn't been found and taken in by them. The conversation is interrupted by a kerfuffle outside. Carl has returned, and he brings with him into the cave the unconscious doctor. Carl claims to have seen this man make fire with his fingers, which we know is the doctor using a match. The man will teach him the secret of fire, making Carl the true leader of the tribe. Waking up to the sound of voices, the doctor is panicked to find himself surrounded by cave people. They demand that he makes fire for them and he promises to make them all the fire they want if they let him go. This probably would have worked, but as the Doctor begins searching his pockets for his matches, to his horror, he discovers they must have been dropped. With the Doctor seemingly unable to perform, things are embarrassing for Carl. He threatens the Doctor with his hammer, but at this moment, Susan appears, leaping onto the caveman's back. The other three travellers have followed them and arrive just in time to defend the Doctor. The Doctor needs saving in this first story. The Doctor isn't the one who comes in to rescue people. The Doctor is the one who needs rescuing because he's a doddery old man. And he's not, again, the moment when he wakes up surrounded by caveman, he's completely out of his depth. He doesn't know what's going on. You know, he's still, he's, again, he's not used to this yet. He was about to light the fire for them. He was just like, yes. all right, yeah, you need yeah. a fire. I'll get you out of here. I can go and get that's you when issues yeah. start happening because he loses the matches. Exactly. He's like, oh, oh no, what do we do now? A fight ensues, and Ian is wrestled by Zar, who raises his axe over him. The Doctor calls out, if he dies, there will be no fire, which halts Zar. After thinking, Zar calls out, take them to the Cave of Skulls. As the strangers are dragged away, Old Mother mutters to herself, that fire will kill us all. In the Cave of Skulls, the TARDIS team is bound. As the name suggests, the cave is full of bones. Perhaps the bones of the people all left here, like them, to die. And that's our cliffhanger for episode two. Yeah, I didn't mind that cliffhanger. I think episode three's cliffhanger is way better. But Mm. um, I do want to point out one line that's in here that Za says that is really funny. Yeah. Um, It just, it made me laugh so hard when he said it. But he says, Cal has been with us too long. It is time he died. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah just like oh my god um that is my response to a lot of things now it was like this it's been with us too long it's time he died um kill him I, off uh, apparently but i don't know if this is true or not i should have done mm-hmm. a little bit more research apparently some of the bones used in the cave of skulls were actual bones really um, and apparently the place stank oh um i don't know how much truth there is to that because that sounds incredibly dodgy to me but i've just heard that as a as stated as a fact in some of the kind of 
documentary things I was looking up mm-hmm. when I was researching this episode. Um, so I'm, I, I'm saying that with a grain of salt, but apparently there's also a, a line in the episode, which is someone says that this place stinks. I feel like that's an ad lib. Oh, okay. And people just took that and ran with it. Yeah. They're like, oh, they're real bones. But also it's interesting watching the pilot and the aired episode is you realise how much ad-libbing, because they're sort of doing it very roughly, how sort of imp- improvisational the episodes are. Are they very improvisational? Not very. They're sort of like flying by the seat of their pants in terms oh, of okay. line learning. And obviously line learning for William Hartnell becomes a bit of an issue. Part three, the forest of fear. Night has fallen. The tribe sleeps together in a pile in the centre of their cave, all save for Old Mother. Unseen, she creeps between the sleepers, finding Zar's stone knife on the ground beside him. With the knife, she slips out of the cave, but not unseen. Her wakes just in time to see Old Mother exit. In the cave of skulls, the four time travellers huddle together for warmth. Around them, the bones of those who came before. Having scavenged for sharp stones, the group works together to saw through Ian's bonds. Their only hope is to fight their way out when their captors come back. However, they are interrupted by a sound from the corner of the cave. Through a hidden entrance in the back of the cave, Old Mother appears looming over them. You shall not make fire, she says, eyes glinting. Yeah, but... This, it's not really a secret entrance. Yeah. It's it's a big hole in the corner of the cave. Yeah, and no one's noticed it. How did now. no one not notice <laughs> it? I get I can this is sort of a thing I think with classic Doctor Who is you kinda have to look at what the story is beyond the production. I know. Values. It was just one of yeah. those things where I was like, if I was in this actual situation. I'm pretty sure I would have noticed there is a giant hole that is only being blocked by like one large branch. Yeah. And also you'd feel the wind coming through. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too. Doesn't Ian feel the wind coming from somewhere? Yeah. He says he feels it from the, from the door. Yeah. He's like, oh, there's, there's a draft. We can get out. And so then they try breaking the bonds instead of like trying to find the draft, which I mean, I guess if it's hard to move around with your, your feet and hands bound i understand but that was just something where i was like this is a really big entrance guys uh all right so we've got old mother you will not make fire you will not make fire not far behind her has woken czar and is telling him about what she saw she knows of old mother's superstitions and fear of fire and suspects her plan is to slay the strangers before they can pass on the secret czar doesn't seem afraid he spied an opportunity. If he were to save the strangers, perhaps they would pass on the secret to him, not Carl. They soon arrive at the great stone that blocks the entrance to the Cave of Skulls. The stone has not been moved, yet from inside they can hear Old Mother's voice. How has she managed to get inside? Within the cave, Old Mother reveals to the TARDIS team that she's not come to kill them. Instead, she plans to free them, as long as they promise to take the secret of making fire with them. She has brought the knife to cut their bonds and is in the process of helping the four travellers free when the great stone begins to move aside. Zara is attempting to reach them, but not before Old Mother can spirit the four out the back of the cave. Old Mother herself is the only one not to make it out in time. She is caught by Zara and her as they enter. Zara is enraged that the strangers have been freed, but does not follow them into the forest straight away, remarking, 
the beast will kill them. Having made it some way into the forest, the doctor stops to catch his breath. All this running about is a lot for his old body. Ian offers to carry him, but the doctor's not so keen on the idea. It um, would be so funny, like a fireman's carry of Ian yeah. running with the doctor over his shoulder. It'd be so funny. There is a lot of toxic masculinity in this, like, series. Like, basically, the doctor and Ian the whole time are sort of like arguing out for their who's, chests. like, who's chief macho yeah. man. Even, mm-hmm. like, later on, Ian does say the doctor is the, you know, when they say, who is your leader? And he's like, he is, referring to the doctor. It's sort of like, in a kind of like, yeah, okay, I'll give you this one. Uh, but at, at this point, this is the point where Barbara starts to panic a bit, which yep. up until this point, she's been fairly, even a bit earlier in the cave when she's supposedly afraid, she still seems quite put together. It sort of feels to me like in this episode, her and Susan accidentally got each other's lines because Barbara suddenly becomes <laughs> really hysterical and Susan does nothing in this. Yeah, she doesn't really do a whole lot. Well, no, that is a lie. She does have like one thing. She remembers the way back to the TARDIS is the only thing she does in this episode. I yeah. Think. Barbara trips over something and it's a dead boar, mm. um, which is too much for her and she completely breaks down and sort of yeah. screams hysterically. Oh, um, I know. There's so much shrieking. Yeah. But also Barbara falls a lot. Yes. Like that is something I noticed. She might not shriek as much as Susan, but she falls a ton. Uh, but also after she falls and Ian helps her up, there's a shot of the two of them basically nose to nose. And I'm just like, oh, my God, guys, you're about to be, like get killed in a forest of cavemen. Like pull it together. But or, also I love it. Or take your chances where you got them. You know, you might be right. dead in a minute. Yeah, there is a sort of um, cliche of classic Doctor Who companions always falling and spraining their ankle. Oh no. Which is a thing, just to be warned, they do fall over a lot. And then the monster, like, you know, it's, it, well, it's a horror movie trope, isn't it? The, 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 the girl's running away from the monster. Yeah. And then she falls over. And then she's overtaken and dies. Yeah. Barbara, who has been doing very well keeping her panic at bay up until now, has almost reached breaking point. Emotions run high all round, Ian and the Doctor squabbling over which way they should go. From somewhere in the forest, there is a deep roar. Something moves nearby. Walking quietly, the group continues onwards into a clearing, where Barbara trips over something on the forest floor. A dead boar. This is the final straw, and she breaks down in tears. Some way behind, Zar and her have entered the forest in pursuit. They hear the scream of Barbara's fall and follow it until they reach a clearing with the boar's carcass. The TARDIS team crouch just out of sight, holding their breath as their hunters arrive. They all watch in horror as the beast leaps from the undergrowth to attack Zar. In the struggle, the caveman is able to land his axe in the side of the creature's head and the beast drops him, limping back into the forest. Which I don't think we really see the creature, it's sort of implied in okay, good. shots. Yeah. I was, I was trying to think of what the creature looked like because I was like, was I looking at my phone at this point? Did I miss it? What happened? Well, again, they uh, mentioned tigers, but like, I think it's, I don't know, there's sort of a roar that goes on. Mm-hmm. I love how, again, this is a great, this whole sequence of them going through the woods, like Ian suddenly comes into his own. He's like, as soon as there's like an action plan, he's now the voice of reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as soon as he has an objective, get back to the TARDIS he he's sort of he can do it yeah yeah 
Ian, I was sort of mentally ticking off um, Ian's sort of a Boy Scout moments where like, oh, it's like yeah. there's, there's, there's him tracking and then there's him making the stretcher in a minute and then he's making the fire. He's like, it's his sort of dib, dib, dib. He's got his, his badges for mm-hmm. all these different adventure yeah. scenarios. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. That's really cute. We should make Boy Scout badges for Ian. Yeah, we can give them to him as we go as each, each episode. We yeah. can give Ian a different Boy Scout badge. For this one, it's definitely Firemaker. 100%. From their hiding place, the party is torn. The Doctor and Ian want to push on back to the TARDIS, but watching her cradle the injured Tsar, Barbara and Susan insist that they help. Gingerly, the two teachers detach themselves from their hiding place. Ian, knowing full well they've given up their chance of escape, offers to help her, asking that she fetch water so they can tend to Tsar's wounds. The Doctor watches on, perplexed. Having not spent much time among humans yet, he finds himself at odds with their seemingly illogical desire to help a fallen enemy. These are the scenes, I think, where it's illustrated the most that he's he's so intent on their survival, but like, and he's he's completely sort of surprised. He can't comprehend why these humans are stopping to help this caveman who was just chasing them. Because I mean, it's it's confusing. Like, you completely changed objectives very quickly. Um, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Because they were being hunted and like they're still being hunted, but now someone is is injured and we yeah. have to take care of him. It's sort of like they're all playing and then someone fell over and hurt their knee and now the game's not fun anymore. Yeah. Ian wants to make a stretcher so they can carry Zer back to the TARDIS, but the Doctor is indignant. They should leave him behind before the rest of the tribe wake. When his complaint is ignored, the Doctor takes matters into his own hands. Finding a stone on the forest floor, he moves close to the unconscious Tsar and raises it above his head. His wrist is caught by Ian. The doctor is panicked and flustered, caught in the act of potentially doing something hideous. The moment is over quickly, however. They need to move on. Back at the cave, Carl comes across the injured old mother. Realising that she has helped the strangers escape, and moreover that Tsar has gone with them, Carl raises his axe in anger. Arriving moments later in front of the rest of the tribe, Carl presents the body of Old Mother. He claims to have had a vision. Tsar has killed her and absconded with the firemakers. Tsar has betrayed them, and Carl should instead be leader. He, wait, okay. In the Cave of Skulls, Tsar pushed the old woman and she was on the ground, yes, right? Yeah. Like So he already pushed, she's already a bit battered, I think. Yeah, okay. I thought she had died from that. <laughs> I thought she had died because I was looking at my phone at this point and then when she dies a second time, I was quite confused why there was blood. Um, yeah. But I just missed it. So, yeah. okay, so good to know. Carl kills old mother here. Rude. But you don't see any of it on screen because it's a tea time children's show. Right, yeah. Um, well, that also makes it a little bit more confusing for me. For yeah. people that aren't paying attention. But also the death count in Doctor Who for a children's TV show is like one of the highest. Like, is and it also, really? Yeah, it's incredibly high and like gruesome as well. Like people get killed by like acid and all kinds of this stuff. This is true. And like it gets to a point where like people, there's a famous figure called Mary Whitehouse in the UK around like the 80s who was really adamantly against violence on TV, especially mm-hmm. for children. And she really cracked down on Doctor Who because there was so much like horror in it for the time interesting yeah and it all starts here baby Ah. (laughs) all right 
Yeah. Finally making their way out of the forest. Susan spies the TARDIS waiting for them. The group are all overjoyed, but it's short-lived. Knowing a shorter route, the tribe has made it there before them, emerging from their hiding places among the rocks. Hog looms over them all. And that's the end of the episode. That's the end of episode three. I liked the end of that episode. I was very into watching the next one after that. Yeah. That was cool. I have one issue with it. Okay. Is is that they spend the entire episode going through the forest. Yes. And then the cavemen set off and then beat them And there. they're suddenly there. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, they probably be- know the forest better than, yeah. than the team. I know. It's, it's, you could sort of say like, oh, they've been running around in circles for the whole episode. But it is oh quite funny that they literally the whole episode is them running to the TARDIS. And then the cavemen set off mm-hmm. like a scene before and they get there first. Yeah. I just yeah. found that a little bit funny. Um, question about the forest. Yes. Where is it? Is it like it's, an actual forest or is this a set? I'm, I am 90% certain this is just a set. Really? Yes. I thought it was an actual forest. There, there is pretty much no location shooting, I think. I okay. Think, I think until the Dalek invasion of Earth, they do some location shooting in London. I don't think there's any before that. Yeah. I was just assuming they found like a foresty part of England and were running around in character (laughs) but also um all these sets are next to each other so when they're filming one they're literally running from one set to another and when they cut away to the cavemen that's not filmed separately that's filmed at the same time but just on different cameras in the different part of the same studio oh it's like a theater production (gasps) i love that that's why and in later episodes you you can see like there's a bit where like one of the cameras cuts to the wrong bit early and stuff like that You've got to imagine this is more like a play. When they say they've got three edit points, it means that they can they can start again three times. So again, I keep I keep mentioning the pilot episodes, the unaired one. Yeah. Because they again, when you see it in Adventure in Space and Time, the doors swing open and you know, a lot of stuff goes wrong in mm-hmm. that sequence. Um, so there's you watch the whole episode and then they stop and then they go back to you watch the you can watch this on, on the DVD I have. It's just the whole taping. Mm-hmm. So you can watch and they, they go back to the entrance of the TARDIS and do it again. But they do the rest of the episode again from that part. And then they because they have like an ed, you know, when they say an edit, it's someone literally coming in with a pair of shears and, and splitting oh, the tape. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And proxying it back together. So yeah, it's, it's, all this is done in one go or as near to one go as they can do. It's expensive to do it in more than one go, which again, suddenly you start giving them a lot more leniency for like, you know, fluffing things and doing it once. They got like one go at a lot of this. They had rehearsal time. Well, exactly. It's like a play, isn't it? Yeah. That's so cool. I didn't realize that. I think this episode is the worst for sort of the the TARDIS crew being really sort of patronizing to the cave people mm-hmm. and sort of talking about them. And the Doctor is quite bad at this. This is why he's talking about, oh, their minds can't comprehend logic and all this kind of stuff. And he's talking about them as these, you know, savages or whatever. But then we just had a scene where Carl kills a woman with a stone axe and then the Doctor is potentially just about to do the same thing. Mm. So really... Right. How primitive are their brains? So back again with the tribe, Carl presents... I assume, I'm saying it like Carl. Cal. But it's pronounced like Carl, isn't it? But not. he's not called Carl. Um. Hey, Carl. What's that <laughs> you got there? He got an old woman's body. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I've been saying Cal, uh, but that's also 
because I'm American. Maybe I started saying Cal and sort of drifted. It's been a, <laughs> it's been a long... Anyway. Probably, yeah. Part four, The Firemaker. Finding themselves surrounded, the crew of the TARDIS are forced to carry the injured Tsar back to the tribe's cave. Carl has taken over the position of leader, asserting the murder of old woman by Tsar. The unconscious leader unable to defend himself, the doctor steps in. He brings attention to Tsar's knife, the supposed murder weapon, and the lack of blood on it. He pressures Carl into displaying his own weapon, which does show signs of blood. Confronted by the stranger's reason, Carl openly admits to killing old mother, but only because she let the strangers go free. He folds like a paper towel. He does! He gets caught. The doctor's like, hey, his knife has no blood on it, yours does. And he's like, ah, well, screw well, it. Yeah. I mean, I just love the way he does it, though, because he he's like, well, there's no blood here. So it's obviously like not that sharp or like it is sharp or something, something to where yeah. he's comparing the knives. Uh, just without seeing the other one. And then Cal is so upset that he's like, no, my knife is sharper. And then he pulls it out and there's blood on it. And and then he's like, ha ha, gotcha. Um, it's so funny. <laughs> it is so funny. And then he's just like, all right, you got me. Womp womp. <laughs> and I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you meddling. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, it's very Scooby it's- Gang. It's, uh, yeah, it's the first bit of the Doctor, like, playing the kind of detective role, but it is quite goofy, but in a really lovable way. It is! (laughs) Yeah. The tribe begin to rumble amongst themselves, and Ian jumps in to help the Doctor, stirring them up. Carl has deceived them, they should throw him out. The tribe don't take much convincing, and taking Ian's words to heart, they begin pelting Carl with stones until he turns and flees. During this whole ordeal, Tsar has been coming round. Seemingly recovered from the beast's attack, he's risen in time to watch the end of the display. Carl gone, the recently unconscious Tsar wastes no time in sliding back into the leadership role, ordering that again the Firemakers be seized and imprisoned in the Cave of Skulls. Even the promise of fire is not enough now. Tsar's rival gone, the tribe is no longer divided in its loyalty. It was miraculous. Completely. He's like, instantly, he's been savaged by a tiger potentially and he's suddenly just fine right he's like Uh, oh cal's gone i can stop pretending yeah i'm actually very awake i was awake the whole time i've been i've been fine (laughs) so carl exiled he immediately slides back into his position of of leader of the tribe and once again in an exceptional show of ingratitude he orders that the doctor and his friends be seized and taken back to the cave of skulls he's like instantly like okay get them now they've yeah it's, ugh, they just saved your life, man. I know. Like, why are you locking them up again? It's, what a dick. What ugh. a dick, this guy is such a dick. He really is. The stranger's back in the cave. Tsar pulls her aside. He asks what happened after he was attacked by the beast, his memory apparently foggy. Though she didn't understand their actions, she explains that they cared for him like a mother with a baby. Zar ponders on the words that Ian said to him as they were dragged away to the cave. Carl is not stronger than the whole tribe. Uh, this feels like a kind of, I don't know, some sort of, if there's a thesis for this serial, it's this idea of we are stronger together than, than apart, I uh-huh. think is, is yeah. Actually, I, I was going to mention um, the episode being called The, the Firemaker makes me think of, is uh, Firebringer, the um, Starkid musical. Oh, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just okay. kept having flashes of, I ain't going to do the work today. I don't really want to do the work today. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Once again in the Cave of Skulls, Ian, Susan and Barbara gather together dried twigs and leaves. With a piece of string, Ian starts to try to create enough friction to light a spark. Where did he get the wire? I don't know. Maybe it's a shoelace. I don't oh, know. Oh, okay. Okay. That's that's me doing some of the work for them, <laughs> potentially. He's, or maybe it's another bit. I don't know. He's He's got something long and yeah. stringy and he's doing, he's rubbing it. So, you know, when you loop it round and you kind of do like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I yeah. mean, I watched the episode. I yes. know. And no I don't know why else. I was miming it for the <laughs> listeners. Yes. <laughs> Unseen by the rest of the tribe, Zara approaches the cave via the secret entrance, just in time to catch the end of this bizarre ritual. The doctor sees Zara and explains what they are doing, Ian adding that the whole tribe should be watching and that where they come from, the Firemaker is the least important member of the tribe, as everyone knows how to do it. And with that, a small flame begins to burn. The harmony in the tribe was short-lived. Already outside the cave, Horg rallies the others. He believes that the only way to be blessed with fire from Orb is to sacrifice the strangers. No one notices Carl creeping back towards the secret entrance of the cave. Inside, with the small burning fire, Carl enters with the intent of attacking the group, only to face Zar once again. For a second, he seems entranced by the fire, but Carl is set on killing Zar. The two begin to fight, swinging at one another with their stone weapons. The fight is long and brutal, lit by the flickering light of the fire. The time travellers can only watch in horror as a victor emerges, when Zar brings down a rock on Carl's head. Outside, the fevered tribe turns silent as Zar emerges from the mouth of the cave. Time passes. Still unable to leave, the Doxa, Ian and Barbara huddle round the fire in their cave. Their only leverage is gone now Zar has fire. At the other end of the cave, Susan is playing with a flaming torch. She experiments with placing one of the skulls over the end so that the fire appears to emanate from within, licking out of the eyes and mouth. Excited, she presents this haunting image to the others, along with a plan. What she she has this flame. She has a flaming torch, and t- she takes a skull and puts it on top of the flaming torch. So, like the fire is coming out of the skull's eyes, like mm-hmm. Ghost Rider. And she's just like, "Hey, look, guys!" Yeah, she just turns. It goes incredibly metal suddenly. It really um, does. It really does because they're talking about like coming up with a plan, and Susan's over there playing with like a fiery skull and then she turns and she's like hey check this out and then yeah ian's like i know what we're gonna do today ferb yeah. i know what we're gonna do today well okay so susan's been on earth for five months she mm-hmm. says they've been in the 20th century for five months it's november when they leave so she has experienced halloween for the first time recently is all i'm saying oh and maybe maybe like maybe like Many girls her age, she's decided that this is her personality now, is, is Halloween. It sounds like a personal attack. I am a girl her age. Well, no, I'm not 15. I'm definitely not 15. But, I mean, Halloween is a cool holiday. Yeah, I'm saying that this alien girl fell in love with Halloween. Good. Potentially. All alien girls should fall in love yes. with Halloween. That's a great name for a book. Why all alien girls should fall in love with Halloween? 
It's a bit long, but yeah. the, the energy's we'll right. We'll workshop Anywho. it. Yeah. <laughs> when her arrives at the cave bringing food for the strangers, she is met by a terrifying sight. Four skulls, alight with a fire from within, float in the air. Her screams bring the rest of the tribe, allowing the Doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara to slip out the back of the cave and make a dash for the forest. And she starts to freak out. Naturally. I mean, exactly. Yeah. She hasn't experienced Halloween. Exactly. And she's barely even experienced fire, you know? Right. And she she starts to... Maybe this is how Halloween was invented. Maybe it's a oh full circle thing where... Susan gets inspired by Halloween, goes back to the Stone Age and then invents the the kind of superstition of spirits being a, coming back once mm. a day. That'd be, that'd be, if I was rewriting this episode from you know, Modern Warriors, that yeah, would be that what would I would be really cool. This. But then you could like pop and just see, because you know, her was really freaked out by the flaming skulls. Maybe after she's done being freaked out, she's like, oh, we need to threaten this enemy tribe like i've got the perfect idea and we've got a cave of skulls let's make some fire torches and scare the shit out of them the trance is ended by the arrival of czar seeing the skulls and sticks for what they are the tribe give chase into the forest brandishing newly fashioned flaming torches the other side of the trees the four travelers arrive back at the ship wild and covered in dirt from their adventure they pile into the blue box and shut the doors behind them Back inside the gently humming interior, the Doctor frantically operates the controls on the console. The tribe arrive on the arid plain just in time to watch the box disappear into the air. Safely in flight, the Doctor, Susan, Ian and Barbara catch their breath. The Doctor admits he doesn't know where they're going, that they set off too quickly for him to be able to set the coordinates. The TARDIS lands, and activating the scanner shows a landscape outside. A strange petrified jungle. They could be anywhere. The Doctor announces that they will have to go outside again and take measurements and ascertain where in the universe they are. But before that, they have time to tidy up. As the unlikely crew move further into the ship, the radiation gauge on the console begins to rise until it reads, Danger. So, Mm -hmm. we've made it through the first... Serial. Yes, we okay. did. Mm-hmm. So, Julia, are you excited to keep going? You know, I am. I haven't started watching any of the other ones yet because I wanted to make sure that I have this. It, it wasn't yeah. like influenced by future episodes, but I am excited to see the Daleks for the first time. They're honestly not my favorite like villain in the Doctor Who universe, um, but I love that they... Are, are the first villain and yeah. I'm excited to see it. I think we'll, I mean, we'll talk a lot about Daleks when we watch the Daleks. Yeah. But I think it's, it's interesting that Dalek mania is, is what really makes the show mm-hmm. a success. And I think if this next episode wasn't the next episode, we wouldn't be here talking about Doctor Yeah, Who. yeah. And it's a shame because, again, like I say, the first episode, I think is genuinely cracking. It's, it's so good. It's like, it's like for, even for a modern audience, I think it completely holds up. I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think if nothing else, uh, anyone that hasn't seen the classic Doctor Who would love the first episode. Yeah, it's 20 minutes. I feel like it's, uh, uh, you know, I say this, watching classic Doctor Who is is a labor of love because it's, the main, the main difference I think is pacing. Mm. It's a lot slower 
And it's, you know, our attention spans have got a lot shorter than, you know, than they used to be. But that first episode is 20 minutes. You can find it online. It's definitely worth a watch, I think. I agree. I I agree. Um, And I love knowing that it's 20 minutes um, because that's really not that much time. No. And, you know, I think, again, again, I think we get used to watching them, these episodes all in bulk. Mm Mm-hmm. As mod, as you know, young younger people going back and watching them, I will. That's what I do. I stick on a DVD and I watch all parts of it in one go, generally, mm-hmm. which is not the way it's meant to be. Is I doing it this, this time with the rewatch? I watched it episode by episode, and actually, I appreciated each bit more. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it all blurs together otherwise, and I think actually doing it this way is more fun. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't. I haven't watched it in bulk. As of yet, I just watch like one episode in the morning um, with coffee. And that's just because that's all really the time I have. Uh, But I like it. I mean, I like that it doesn't feel like I'm binge watching it. It does have that little bit of separation, but not so much that I have to wait a week, which is great because I do not have that type of patience. Yeah. Yeah. No, if we were doing this properly, we'd, we'd watch one episode every Saturday. And it would take us 60 years. <laughs> so we're not going to do that. No. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, this has been really fun. And I've, I've, I've actually, I really enjoyed what, going, going yeah. back and watching this properly. Again. Are you excited and to keep going? I am. I'm really excited. I, I forget how much you just love this TARDIS crew. It's such a little... I don't know, it's such a little happy place, these four people mm-hmm. traveling around. And I'm so excited for you to also enjoy this era because it's it's so fun and cute. It is it is fun and cute. Yeah. I like them and a lot. Yeah. On my big finish recommendations, they've recently relaunched all their classic Doctor series. So they've all got their own ranges and they've got they're doing the first Doctor Adventures they're doing with, with a actor called Stephen Noonan, who's doing a more accurate uh, impression of William Hartnell. Mm-hmm. Whereas David Bradley, he's playing his own version of the first Doctor. Um, but what I but what I recommend for this time is there is the, again it's that it's that series they did with the cast of Adventure in Space and Time, mm-hmm. where there's it's 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 recreating this era of Doctor Who, set between the first two series, and it's sort of. And the, the thing that Big Finish do really well with the classic Doctor Who is it's, it's making it feel like the era, you know, like the, all the sound mm-hmm. effects mm-hmm. and the, and you know, the kind of style of acting, they just, they just nail it on the heads and it's just a really nice, nice world to slip back into, I think. Yeah. I love that. You'll have to like attach a link or something to the bottom of the episode for people to just click yes. on it and find it. Yes, I will. Future me will do that. Yeah. (laughs) Editing Jonah will do that. Yes. Next time on You Know Who. The doctor has a goblin brain. Exactly. He sees something shiny and he's like, I must, I must investigate. Especially the the first doctor. Thanks for listening to You Know Who. If you want to see more from me and Jonah, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at You Know Who Podcast. 
And if you want to support the podcast, tell your friends and family. Give us a rating if your podcast app does that. And if you want to hear your name at the end of each episode, become a producer at patreon.com backslash you know who podcast. 